Welcome to The Platform, a podcast from the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Jonathan Jackson is a co-founder of Blavity Inc., a technology and media company for Black millennials. Blavity's mission is to economically and creatively support Black millennials across the African diaspora so they can pursue the work they love and change the world in the process. Blavity has grown immensely since their founding in 2014, among other things, spawning five unique sites, reaching over 7 million visitors a month, and organizing a number of technology, activism, and entrepreneurship conferences. Jonathan Jackson is also a joint fellow this year with the Neiman Foundation and the Berkman Klein Center. During his time here, he says, he's working on frameworks and unique ways to measure Black cultural influence and the economic impact of Black creativity in the U.S. and around the world. Jonathan sat down with the Berkman Klein Center's Victoria Borneman to talk about his work. I'm Victoria with the Berkman Klein Center. We got Dan on audio. And today we're interviewing our 2018-2019 Neiman Berkman Fellow, John Jackson. Uh, John, we're so excited to have you with us. Uh, could you start by introducing yourself and sharing a bit about you and your background? Nice to be here. My name is Jonathan. Uh, my background um, is entrepreneurial. So for the past four years or so, I was a co-founder of a company called Blavity Incorporated. Um, it's a media and lifestyle brand for black millennials. Um, before that, I worked at LinkedIn across a variety of roles, but most recently on the editorial team where I managed the influencer program, uh, which was really, really well-known names in business, bringing their insights to about half a billion people. Um, so my work is kind of at this intersection of uh, media and community, um, black culture, ownership, um, digital things, um, which has brought me somewhat serendipitously to both Berkman and Neiman, which is super exciting. Yeah, that's great. It seems like you already touched on this next question when you talked about the intersections. Uh, but, you know, what are you focusing on? What do you plan on looking at during your fellowship? Yeah, so I'm trying to find the right questions to ask this year. That's really my focus. I think there's some like really deep work that I have to do over the next three to five years. And this is a year for me to really sit and pause and say, what questions do I want to interrogate and how deeply should I interrogate them? And what are the tools I need and the methodologies to interrogate them? So um, on the Neiman side, which is really focused on sort of elevating the standards of journalism, my focus is really around like the, the evolution of black media and what that means in an ecosystem that's like fighting. So Traditionally, like I, you think black media is, is very much so in print, so in circulation. So you have John H. Johnson, you have Ebony, you have Jet, you have Essence, um, Black Enterprise. And so you have these really, really lauded publications, which is fantastic with big readership, and not only indexing black life, but actually talking about very specific sectors of it. Um, and I think around the sort of the digital transformation, early 2000s, things went online, and there wasn't necessarily always the understanding that digital wasn't going away that this wasn't like a fad, it wasn't like a pastime. This is where life would be indexed and recorded. And that transition was hard for businesses that were already trying to actually maintain themselves, promote from within, secure funding. Some people made the, the, the leap over the chasm. Um, some people um, sort of struggled. And what we found, I think, with Blavity was that there was a wide open space for us because of how transformational those, those few years have been and where you actually get an audience from. Berkman actually is interesting because the other side of this is really around IP um, um, ownership and sort of this really big gray area with creativity and like cultural context and who owns what 
and how people can protect themselves when they make art on platforms that when you sign the user agreement, it's essentially open source. Like if you're sharing, like you don't own it anymore. Um, and so if there's not a way to think about how to monetize that or structures for yourself to be legally protected, it leaves you sort of bare. And what happens at scale is like the people who are making culture never recoup anything off it. And it's only arguably it's only valuable when someone else takes it. And I think that is a very dangerous precedent that we see play out in a couple different arenas. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to ask you to expand on that. I want to say that it sounds like you have a very strong understanding of the historical landscape. Yeah. Um, and that's really valuable here when we, when we have these conversations about digital rights intersecting with uh, different demographics and communities. Yeah. And so could you talk more about um, how the conversations changes about who owns what within the black African-American context? Yeah, so I think the best example I still have is around Peaches Monroe, who was the girl who um, invented the term on fleek, or the phrase rather. And so she did that um, in her vehicle, um, posted it on Vine. She had just got her eyebrows done, and she just came up with this term to describe what the feeling of her eyebrows being magnificently um, displayed were. And it was hilarious. It got picked up. And Vine at the time was sort of like where a lot of black creators were sort of popular. But Vine, it was like if you got a funny video, you got like a five to eight second clip and you're doing something, you were getting because it was looping. So everyone was sharing on Vine. It's, it's a form of commerce. And I think that's what is interesting on these platforms is like black people use them for what they would normally do. And it's, a, it's another form of communal storytelling. It's, or, it's oral and it's visual, which if you think about culturally, that's how at least I learned a lot of my family history, was oral, and then visually you see the person after knowing the story. So she does it, she goes viral, she becomes an internet sensation basically overnight. Um, from there, the, the, um, the culture it begins to permeate. So it's sort of like a halo effect where the person makes something, the bigger outer ring becomes this sort of mainstream season. So I think Ariana Grande or somebody did a, did a vine around it singing, like on fleek. And then from there it was over. So that, that then, that's a, it's an equation, it's a number. And then she was an exponent. So she multiplied the reach. So her fans were like, what is this? Oh my gosh, right? And so people sort of know where it was coming from, but then brands got a hold of it. And they were like, this, everyone's saying it, right? It's in, it's in rap lyrics, it's, it's on t-shirts. And so you're dealing with like trademarks, you're dealing with distribution rights, you're dealing with like licensing agreements, and no one has ownership. So it's really just the first person out of the gate that knows how to legally do that wins. It's not about what's right, it's not about what's fair, it's not about equity. It's literally, there is no law that says anyone owned it. So if I can prove that there was no ownership right to it or claim or first use, and the other person has no counsel or even knows how big of a deal this was, I win. Right. Can I ask you, why is this work important right now from your perspective? You know, the, the momentum of this moment. Yeah. I mean, I just saw a lot of things uh, during my time at Blavity. One of the things I saw was that these, these large, I would go to large media organizations and agencies and brands. And after they, like, believed, like, we weren't making it up, after, like, they believed, like, four black kids made a company and, like, 
black people like enjoyed receiving news about themselves and, and so like, like getting across that barrier right it was a, no it's a it's a barrier it sounds yeah. funny but it's a barrier like i would walk in and they wouldn't believe it and i'd pull up the slides and it was so tough for them after we got past that um there was always a moment where i felt like they were reaching to figure out what was coming next and the reaching they just they just wouldn't say black they just couldn't do it like it'll be all right like you like we say black our audience, like you can say, it, and they just they just can't deal with the idea that the highest form and the most proliferated form of cultural creation comes from an audience that is perceived as deviant, it is perceived as less than, and is perceived as less deserving. And everyone is looking for what's next. They just don't want to admit where they're looking. And so for me, the other side of this is like what happens when someone does have power and agency so a cardi b or a lebron james who is known in an industry but if you think about how they do business and work they are entities like cardi b is a media company she raps awesome she hosts she sings she's a personality she has a personality yeah. she does branded content deals she does licensing she is she has the she has all the structures that we would underpin to a multinational corporation. It just happens to come in the form of a 25-year-old uh, Trinorican woman from Uptown, from the Bronx. And that's, that's, that's really what I think this model is. And so if you, if you take that, that's, that's at scale. But if you break that down and you deal with a creator, those are all things that can be structured. We can get them agreements. We can learn how to make sure they protect their art early enough. We can tell them that their digital assets are just as important as physical assets. So if you're not making T-shirts, but you're making pop art on Instagram, that needs to be protected too. And so it, the barrier for me is less do people know that like their work's getting taken. It's more about is there a legacy of actually helping people understand how to protect themselves in this environment that is a, that is a new economy where winners and losers, quote unquote, aren't just decided by who's – it's not a merit game. It's decided by – who has access to what knowledge portals and how widely distributed that can be. So I'm not naive enough to think I can solve all of it. I just think these are really pressing questions because more of our, more of our lives are being um, digitized. And so we, we, if we already don't have ownership in real life and life is moving to a digital space, I don't want to see us become digital sharecroppers. Like historically, that's where I anchor. We know what that looks like to not own land, and to, and to have to work around things that you will never see come to fruition because you don't actually have agency. That cannot happen digitally because that will affect a multiplicity of generations and we will have sort of walked away from a chance to actually, um, you know, find some balance or some equity. Yes. Uh, you know, I think it's really powerful you sharing the pushback you get in your meetings and you're still motivated to continue. Can you talk more about what motivates you? Yeah. I th so I think I, I just saw a lot of people growing up who I think were like geniuses, but like never got to live their genius out. And that like really, really hurt me. And I think it, w it was there are a lot of factors or a lot of reasons. There's class, there's environment. But like when it comes down to it, a lot of it was the belief. Like, if you can strip someone of the, if you can take someone's confidence early enough, you have them. But even if they're good, you can always you can always control um, 
the mythical ceiling. So you can all, you can always just keep either lowering it or raising it, um, commensurate to that, that that person's ability to like believe they have their own agency. Yeah. Can you define mythical ceiling? Yeah. So for me, a mythical ceiling is this idea that uh, you can only be so good at a point and then you run into it. So that's different than a structural barrier, which is there. A mythical ceiling is when you literally don't have one and someone is aware of your talent, but they're frightened by how, how broad it can be. And so um, they want to control your outputs such that they continue to make as much as they can off it. And that, to me, I know a lot of people in bad deals. Yeah. Bad deals with where they work, bad deals with where their research is placed, bad deals with their, um, you know, people around them. And so I think about that more so as how do you uh, restore uh, people's belief? And what is what does that look like? I have seen that most powerfully communicated through the vehicle of media. I do not believe media is a cure. I don't believe it's a fix-all. But I do believe we are naturally inclined to engage with stories. And if we can tell a multiplicity of stories with nuance and humanity then we it serves that we would have a better opportunity to expose people to the wide gamut of opportunities that they actually do have, which runs counter to maybe what they see and their environment. Because exposure is a weapon. Whether it's good or bad, you, you can't unsee things. Um, and so I, I've been fortunate to see a lot of things that changed what I thought was possible early enough. So then I was able to sort of um, let that distill and then I could be like, okay, you know what? If that person did it, then what are the skill acquisition? I what's the skill acquisition I need to go do that thing? And I can I can totally relate um, to um, growing up in black neighborhoods and seeing the genius everywhere. Whenever there was a talent show, you these these kids would come every single year with magic, and it would just be so sad when I'd move away and come back and ask, you know, that magic is no longer there. And so you see a lot of potential just. Uh, rot yeah i've more recently i've started to think about like how do you cultivate that i think being around berkman and and neiman the thing i appreciate is like there was a, there's an intentionality when you when you build a structure um and so i think i have had to think about like what is what is the long-term game plan here to make sure that like there are places where genius can be cultivated and the the places that the cultivation happens run independent of other things. So no matter what's happening, the things can stand. And so that requires a very specific type of bricklaying. Like the foundation has to be airtight such that the place you're building can withstand. And I, I, um, I am like most interested in that because I think that's how you, that's one of the ways you can incubate people and, and, and help them sort of create and craft the kind of work they are supposed to do in an environment that is just feeding them. And so if they can be fed and they can be whole, they can go out and come back in and it allows them sort of flexibility and, and agency. And so, yeah, I've been thinking about what, what that would look like. And I, it's been useful to see the models of leadership around Neiman and Berkman and like how people are thinking about the future and what the future means and how to make it open and stuff like that. Yeah, it fits right in with Berkman for sure. Um, intentionality is one of our pillars. Yeah. But uh, that goes into the second to last question. Where do you hope to be in, in five or ten years? Yeah. So for me, I think there's some 
there's some form of this work that I have to think about the distribution of it. I think thought work sometimes can get buried in academia. So I've been thinking about like what what would like getting these ideas out look like? What are the formats? What are the forums? Who do I need to work with? What kind of team would I need to assemble to like really get this sort of moving? Uh, the other thing I think about is like how to not make it like super North American. I'm West Indian by heritage, so like most of my family uh, has a tie to um, Trinidad, and they live in different places. And so my framing has been really specific to like, okay, if they know that like Jonathan's doing a thing over here, how can I localize this? Like, how could I make this meaningful for their life? Um, outside of the fact that they just like love me by default, like how could I just make it a thing? And so that's 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 made me think about more of a global take on some of these things, which are they will play out differently in a different city, but the the core elements of what people don't have generally remain the same. Um, and so I think there's a world in which I have to be a more global in my capacity. Um, some of my work will be centered on London because London is a really interesting um, dynamic that I think has some similarities. And then, yeah, I think I need to build stuff that like doesn't need me to run. Like that's my new thing is like build it and then get out of the way. But one thing I, I don't think we necessarily talk about as it relates to cultural institutions and sometimes in black media has been the lack of succession planning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when it's time to go, it's time to go. And we see this in the political sphere. I'm personally a fan of term limits. Yeah. I think, you know, doing 40 years in one thing isn't the only way to build a legacy. Uh, and I think sometimes we we praise history without necessarily realizing the context of the present as, um, as we need to. And so I think building structures that allow for new people to take leadership and make those mistakes and learn and grow, that's what we need. Like we need, we need space and opportunity to, to be, to expose yourself to the full capacity. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about is how to build something and then how to make sure my personal plan allows me to remove myself as quickly as needed so I'm not like an overlord indefinitely. Yes, I think that was beautifully put. And I also just want to flag, I appreciate your comment on going global as tech and media are global. It's not just a landscape here in the, in the North America. Yeah. And so as you think about sustainability, as you think about um, history, I like that you, uh, you don't have a very static uh, understanding of history and that you're um, critical of it. So that's, that's exciting. And so my last question is, do you have any, if you had to give advice for anyone, and I wanted to ask about, um, you know, people that maybe are similar to you who are knowledgeable in, in this um, landscape in terms of the business side that you've described, but who also have a personal insight from their real life experiences, yeah. or maybe who've just, uh, you know, educated themselves. Yeah. Uh, do you have any advice to those people? Yeah, I would. Uh, there's a couple ones. So I've I've been very polymathic since I was really really little, and that's really hard because uh, I think there are a few things more frightening than like a young black kid who uh, believes in himself enough to ask questions, because that threatens everything. Because I, I if you don't know the answer, you telling me I shouldn't ask it is in fact not an answer, um, and so that made parent teacher confidence really really spicy for me. Uh, thankfully my parents like encouraged me to ask questions. So I, I, I owe them a, a, a large debt of gratitude there for sort of cultivating that. As you get older, 
I think it can become a little less contentious, but then it then it looks like you're unfocused. So I have a bunch of different interests. And when I display that, it's kind of like um, it's like looking at a buffet tray and someone's like, well, what can't you just eat this one thing? And I'm like, but I want all of it. I want everything I deserve. <laughs> and so um, as it relates to having both of those counterbalances, I think it's putting yourself in um, arenas and spaces that prioritize um, dynamic learning or orthogonal thinking. Berkman is one of those places. Neiman is one of those places. And so for someone with a business context, it can sometimes feel like, you know, I could never get to academia or you might have some, like I did, some leftover anxiety about how hard academia was because I was a different type of learner. And I think interrogating why, like looking at those anxieties and being honest about why you have them and not projecting them into an environment that could literally be the best thing for you. Because um, I'll tell you, a lot of friends didn't know what I was doing. And then when they started to look up where I was just by association, they're like, all this stuff is happening. I'm like, yeah, man, it's like been here. But we sort of limit ourselves to where we are. And I just, I wanted more. And I think more looked like here. And I think when you have sort of a multi-hyphenate um, um, sort of work style, you can, you can feel intimidated, but then you can get to a place where everybody's like that. And that's like the normal. So it's like, it would be a little abnormal if I didn't have a bunch of different interests. And so it is rare, in my opinion, to find places like that. And I think they exist. I just think they don't necessarily come in the packaging we typically think. And so that that's what I would encourage people to do is think about the places you might skip over and really investigate. If you don't find anything, no harm, no foul. But if you do, think about how you can find your way to that kind of space because it can, I think, multiply your um your range like i i think the most important thing for me is like my range is getting expanded here and so i have i'm 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 like a t-shaped learner so i i I have depth in certain places but my my length is actually getting extended and i think that is like super super exciting (laughs) (laughs) uh but john uh thank you so much for joining us today it's been great to talk to you incredibly insightful and surprising Um, But, you know, I shouldn't have been surprised that you were so knowledgeable. Um, But, you know, thanks again for coming today. The pleasure is mine. Jonathan Jackson is a co-founder of Blavity Inc. and a Neiman Berkman Fellow. He spoke with Victoria Borneman, who also edited today's interview. Jonathan is very active on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow him on either platform at John underscore underscore Jackson. Again, very important. John underscore underscore Jackson. The platform was produced from the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. You can find out more about the Berkman Klein Center and our fellows at cyber.harvard.edu, where you could also subscribe to this podcast and our email list for news, events, opportunities, and more.